listening to The RC, your guide to digital cinema, filmmaking, and cutting-edge imaging. Sponsored by Storm, the digital cinema production hub from The Foundry. Go to thefoundry.co.uk slash storm for details. And by the Australian Cinematographers Society. Visit cinematographer.org.au. Hi, and welcome to the, well, to the RC podcast, we're calling it. It's Red Centre, but as you know it, but uh, we've in fact been calling it the RC behind the scenes for so long now that we decided to change the name. And, and I'm joined here in our, our new age of, well, this new age of Aquarius um, by a new age director, Jason Wingrove. How are you? I'm very well. Looking very cash today? Yes, I'm feeling a bit new age. Still hanging around in board shorts and um, just chilling, chilling over the holiday break till uh, work starts to kick up uh, probably next week, I'd say. Well, this is our 80th episode of uh, the RC, and we decided that um, we'd celebrate by uh, slightly adjusting the name and going with uh, the slang that we've been calling it, partly because we just call it that, and partly because we think it better reflects the fact that we cover a whole range of stuff, and a few people have been confused that we're only covering um, red stuff, obviously going to continue to cover that, and and as the epic comes out, of course, there'll be tons of stuff in that area. So it's the same podcast that you know and love from the same crowd that you'll know and love. But if you actually go and check out our website, fxguide.com, you'll notice that this isn't the only thing that's changed. The entire FX Guide, um, well, mega conglomerate has been overhauled uh, during the break. And in fact, Jace, this is something we've been working on for months. Mm. Um, had an entire team on it in Chicago. And uh, so it, there's actually now a whole new special, if you click on it, podcasting um, section of the FX Guide site with lots of cute sort of things that fly across the screen and do things. And you'll see there um, uh, that there's a whole section on, um, on the RC and that's where you can get the latest uh, updates. Of course, there'll also be uh, as normal in the iTunes. The other thing I wanted to flag is FX uh, Insider. Now, this is a chance for you to contribute to FX Guide. We've been doing this now since 1999, and uh, we have a small amount of advertising, but we thought we'd actually open it up to the community. Rather than going down a a heavy advertising path, we're going to have just a small amount of advertising as we've got and open it up to you to contribute. And as our way of saying thank you for that, we've set up a thing called FX Insider, and this allows us to give you additional content, higher res material, uh, unedited interviews, just a whole bunch of stuff. And that'll be increasingly ramping up over the uh, coming weeks and months. We've actually got new staff on to contribute to all this. So our idea is that we thought we'd try and expand with you, with the community. Now, this um, RC podcast has been really successful, as, as you know, and we want to continue doing this. We're going to do more stuff. And so we're going to try and uh, get on set more, do more stuff out of the office and uh, contribute more. So if you could contribute to us, we'd like to be able to turn that around and give it back to you. So that's all at uh, FX Insider on fxguide.com. Excellent. Well, Jace, while you can... Had I, a- actually, while I remember something, because I'm sure I, I always forget this stuff, um, Jeff Hughes did an excellent um, interview with Stephen Poster, ASC, mm-hmm. a cinematographer. Uh, that's an FX podcast. Um, uh, podcast. Uh, fantastic interview with him just about everything, digital cinematography, working with Post, camera gear, you name it. Just But really, really good, uh, really nice guy, great chat, and excellently done by Jeff. So thanks for that. Uh, definitely worth a listen. I've Twittered that a bit, but, uh, yeah, that's a cracker. Yeah, if you're only uh, used to listening to the RC, there are actually a bunch of podcasts. The FX podcast is our technical um, post and uh, visual effects podcast, which Jeff and I and John tend to do. Um, you'll hear uh, 
us doing a lot of in-depth discussions, the most recent of which I think is actually Paul uh, Franklin from DNEG discussing the special tools that, or proprietary tools that DNEG have uh, developed over the years. Um, but yes, the one with uh, Steve was terrific prior mm. to that that Jeff had published. Yeah, a no, really good uh, rundown. I don't mm. know I 100% agree with all these opinions, but anyone in Absolutely. his position uh, deserves to have the respect of being listened to. And, uh, and obviously he's very influential. And so uh, his thoughts are... Uh, are really kind of uh, great to listen to. And I've got to say, I quite like actually not being an organisation that, that filters just to our own opinion. So yeah. we've had people on before that uh, you've even interviewed that I've that personally disagreed with. Polarised but been, somewhat. But yeah. Well, yeah, but I've been welcome, you know, welcome their opinions mm. because uh, God, yes. it's, uh, it's an open uh, situation where everyone's going to have their opinions and uh, just because our opinions differ doesn't mean that we don't respect them. Because these the other, are working professionals. These guys oh, are like God, shooting God. every day, you know. Oh, these yeah. are like, you know, serious, you know, top Very, very, top very ranking senior guys. people in the industry, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's so, just the height of hubris to imagine that our opinion is superior to theirs. Yep. Um, but also you'll find the VFX show, which Jason occasionally appears on, uh, which is our, our review show. Um, mm. There's also our FX Guide TV apps, which, just to be clear, are not the same as our FX podcast. They're not the TV version. Well, they are the TV version of the podcast, but they're not the same content. They cover completely different stuff. Um, and we have our 100th episode of FX Guide TV uh, going out to help with the launch of the new FX Guide website. But enough of all that plugging. Let's get on to... Um, I guess some less positive news uh, as we switch to the newsroom. And now, the RC News. So, Jason, you had an interesting start to the year. I know you, you tweeted a couple of sort of slightly acidic comments about um, agencies and stuff. Oh, well, just, you know, first few sort of nibbles for jobs have uh, gone off on quite a crappy budgetary note, but I'm presuming that's going to, you know, not going to be indicative of the rest of the year. But, uh, but I have to say, your year got off to a considerably better start <laughs> than Mark, who was in the Red Room at the last uh, podcast of last year. Yes, that's probably a lot of you may know by now. Uh, Mark Peterson from uh, Off Hollywood uh, was holidaying in, in France and uh, basically had the only shipped uh, Epic M zero 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 six stolen from his uh, hotel room while they were sleeping, which is just like absolutely like unthinkably horrible. Uh, people basically just rummaging through your your jeans and your coins and your jeans at the end of the bed, and and um, while you know while there's six children and eight adults sleeping in this big chalet. So quite horrid, but obviously, luckily everyone is okay. No one's hurt. No one was disturbed. Obviously, uh, but of course, missing is uh, the first ship uh, ever shipped Epic M. Also, which, um, which Jim put a bit of a reward out for. <laughs> yeah, uh, Jim from Red has offered a hundred thousand dollar reward. This is obviously not to promote the thieves to come and return the gear. This well, is no, has a few caveats, a, I think. Um, yeah, you actually require someone to be prosecuted, so you can't steal it and then you know give it back and claim the 100 grand. Yeah, but look, as Mark uh, has said, um, there is a lot of guys uh, involved in the investigation of this. He was really impressed when he went down to the police station and saw that all the cops involved had actually worked through their lunch hour, had been Googling madly. They've got Interpol. They've got a lot of people working on this, and uh, so it was very, very good. He also said, um, not weirdly... um, as, as the guys back at the head office checked through some of the gear that was stolen, um, that there was a few other interesting things with some of the other gear that was, was, was nicked. Uh, it was the, only the second 15 to 40 mil Optimo lens ever made by Ongino was also stolen. This, uh, sorry, yeah, the, uh, obviously the first Red Epic, 
the second 15 to... You guys are just bastards. So, sorry, you just can't see this, but we've just walked into the room with you Jason's birthday sods. cakes. <laughs> yes, it's Jason Wingrove's birthday today, so we're just going to pause on our information from Mark there. And oh, we take nothing away from Mark's thanks, there, just Matt. to wish our very good friend, uh, Mr. Wingrove, here. A, How uh, did you find that out? Happy birthday. Uh, sodding Skype, wasn't it? Or Facebook or some shit like that. Actually, I'm just a friend of yours, and I happen to know it was your birthday. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. And let this little musical thing be the only singing of happy birthday will occur at this time. Pause for cake. <laughs> and we're back. And we're back and from cake. This is good cake. It's excellent cake. Thank it's you, nice Matt, for organising that, as he does the entire show. 80 episodes. <laughs> Um, uh, where was I? Okay, yes, so um, uh, Mark said not only did they get the first Red Epic sold, uh, but also the only the second 15 to 40 Ingenieur ever built, the first 50mm Red Prime ever sold, and the first clamp-on filter from Schneider Optics. So they've uh, sent the information about the lens to the distributors and hope someone will... Uh, Turn it to... That's right. I think you, that's it, really. That's nothing else to say, other than it's really good carrot cake. Mm. And I'm really sorry to be eating cake while, um, while Rome burns. Um, all right. On to other news while we um, keep going through our um, mm. uh, carrot cake. And that's um, an announcement from Red that the Easy HDR is on hold. Now, the Easy HDR, if you remember, was one of two uh, HDR options. So don't panic. This is not that they're dropping the HDRX. It's simply that they're not going to be proceeding right now with the in-camera easy HDR. Now, I think part of the reason for this is that the HDRX just seems so darn good. Mm. And quite frankly, if you said to me, do you really want me to work on getting cameras out the door? Would you like me to work on a second way of getting HDR pictures, which is not quite as good as the one you've already got? I'd go, uh, cameras out the door is fine with me, thanks. Uh, Yeah. yeah. Well, obviously, I also guess it's flags that the... uh proper HDRX mode is obviously going to be easy enough to use and I think obviously it's flagging the fact that they really want to give you the control and the fact I guess that the, con- the control will be easy enough to uh, determine. I, look I spoke to the guys at the foundry and they said they were stunned at how good the straight HDRX stuff was and they were kind of a bit nervous that they were going to be able to make uh, enough of a substantial improvement over it that people would go, wow, aren't the foundry guys clever? Yeah. Um, and I guess maybe... The, I think HDRX is awesome. I guess also probably it's hard to find an HDRX HDR mode that's probably going to suit everybody or every shot. I think you're mm-hmm. probably going to want to be able to set it and uh, then sort of adjust it later. So this leads into another post which uh, Jim put in, which is a really good post actually, which is uh, basically explaining the whole HDRX system. Um, how it essentially works. Uh, did you have a chance to have a look at that, Mike? Talking about the primary, the A track and the X track, basically, and how the uh, essentially there is no real underexposed version. There's essentially the the at exposure track, and then there is uh, an X track where you set uh, how many stops of highlight protection you want: two, three, four, five, or six. Uh, each stop represents, you know, a stop less exposure and shutter speed. So it's uh, if you select, say, two stops and your primary exposure is 148th of a second, the X track will be two stops less than that, so 190th whatever of a second. Uh, which is, I mean, I did read this, and it is pretty much exactly what we expected it to be, mm. which is that you can, on an electronic camera, have an immediately, uh, immediately fire your second frame right after your first, because the whole point of, adding the 180-degree shutter is to 
delay that, cameras naturally want to fire right after the first. So you can fire that second X-Track, that fast, you know, say 192th of a second um, uh, exposure, the really short one that's going to obviously get the highlight info back. That short one can fire right after the normal one without any... Um, any gap. Now, the only thing about that is it's not perfect because there is going to be some issues. Um, There's differences between the two. Yeah, we did some testing with this, simulating it, um, just purely for an educational level. We're not trying to say that we know what Red's doing, but uh, if you've got a highlight ping that's um, trailing, then the highlight ping trail is going to be slightly different between those two versions uh, on a panning shot. Now, the question comes down to, do I care? And I think this is a big point that this HDRX gives you so much, it won't be perfect. But if it gets you 95% of the way there, it's 95% of the way there I couldn't otherwise get to, no matter how hard I absolutely try, Look, without pumping a ton of extra lights in the shot. Absolutely. I mean, one of the, obviously, yeah, the main issues would be slight temporal shift, but also the fact that the second um, um, overexposure pass or the X-Track is... Uh, uh, has less motion blur to it because obviously you're firing that off at a higher a higher uh, exp- um, shutter speed. So, um, but I guess you know as they flag, there will be traps and tricks, and you know you need to sort of know what to avoid or how to sh- you know what to shoot and what you c- what you can and can't get away with it. But again, there's there's but isn't that the entire issues issue with- of the entire motion picture industry? I mean, you know, there's a ton of things you don't do. Yeah, and you just learn what they are and don't. I don't. I don't know. It needs to be unable to be unable to be found fault with to be really helpful. In other words, just because you can get to a situation that you can find that you can get it to fall over doesn't mean that most of the time it isn't bloody useful. Yeah, and uh, and absolutely something that I think is going to be one of the strongest points. Now, I think the other thing is you can also. Well, I totally take nothing away from it. I think you can also imagine that you can shoot everything HDRX, and I, I don't think that's going to be the case either. If you had a properly lit headshot for an interview, you're probably not going to need the dynamic range of an HDRX because yeah. you're not going to have highlights pinging on their forehead and jet black on the other side of their head unless you're doing some kind of horror flick. So, you, you know, you just simply wouldn't need it in that case. Um, mm. So I don't think it's, it's everything. I just think it's an enormous something that we don't have now. Yeah. Oh, look, absolutely. No one, no one can complain. It's going to be a fantastic system. One of the interesting things that comes out of it is this magic motion mode, I guess, or um, uh, I guess a description of, of what it can do for you. Um, the idea, obviously, is that you're combining um, a, a, a standard, you know, two, two frames, I guess, that, have, that are shot at slightly different um, shutter speeds. Um, and obviously, I guess what the guys have seen now is that this is giving you a very interesting look, hmm. um, and calling it essentially calling it magic motion, and saying that it's not that sort of uh, far to. It's not sort of not making it look like video. It's not making it look like you know like a Private Ryan sort of staccato. It's a very different look that now essentially, obviously, we've put we've given a name to. So I'll be very keen to see what magic motion is because they're they're saying it's very. It has a very real look and has a very um, this brings uh, up a really unfilmed point. but in a good way. Yeah, but this is a, brings it. up a really important point, which is that so many people discuss the quality of a digital camera, be it a SLR or whatever, in these video modes in as a comparison to film, as if film is in every respect exactly what you want and exactly what the audience requires. And unfortunately, it's just one of the goalposts. I mean, you could get something to look exactly like film 
And if you stopped there, you'd really be doing the whole industry yeah. a injustice because you can actually go to places that are different from film, not better, yeah. not worse, just different. And um, if you're getting to those places because you have dynamic range and you choose to spend it in a certain way, if you're getting to those places because you have um, motion blur and you choose to make it look in a certain way, then that's exactly what DOPs do. They make creative decisions to tell stories. It's all good. I don't think we have to be saying, well, if it doesn't look exactly like film, you failed. I think that's absolutely wrong. Yeah, we've got, I mean, essentially a chance to sort of relook at things now. That whole film look it was established through a mechanical process. It had to be. That's, that's how it was. And, you know, you and I grew up with kind of, I don't know, Bruce Willis jumping off buildings with bits of hose tied around him and, and uh, you know, terrific filmic effects, which had all these lovely hallmarks of the action films of the 80s or whatever. Mm. But, you know, there's a whole generation uh, like, well, Ian, who's just joined us here at the FX, uh, he doesn't even know who Bruce Willis is. Mm. And, uh, you know, barely old enough to, to even know who great bands or like Bruce Springsteen. Special, or Bruce Springsteen, yeah. I, mm. I think, yeah. I think he's heard of you three, but not you two. Um, so anyway, the point is that for that generation that's coming up with video games and with um, a kind of completely different digital aesthetic, yeah, I don't think they're crying out for film grain. They're not sort of saying, oh, my God, if this thing doesn't have film grain, I don't like it. Yeah. I think what the, obviously the main thing we're trying to avoid all the way along, and that's been battle, and obviously that's a well and truly won battle, is not making stuff look like video. As soon as you do, don't make stuff look like video, don't make it look like cheap, then you can do whatever you like. Yep. If you look at Die Hard, say, they took particularly all like the artifacts, and as I've crapped on for years about you know the gorgeous sort of anamorphic flares, and took it all the weird artifacts from those optical systems and used it for art and used it to you know to create an interesting look and. Uh, we're sort of used to that now so theoretically obviously when we start to see stuff like magic motion and hgrx there's going to be a whole new area of of um ways to explore and make create a new look and go beyond maybe what 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 we're used to with film look as long as it doesn't start looking like video we you know bring it on i think it's is it henry ford i think had this um uh great quote that said uh, if i'd asked before you know, essentially came yeah. up with a Model T, if I'd asked everybody what they wanted, they would have just, just asked, could I ha- please have a faster horse? <laughs> you know, so obviously the car came about because it could be done rather than, you know, just if you ask for what people want and give that to them, you're going to just give them what they want. Why not give them something beyond or something that they hadn't thought of? Yeah, I think there is a validity to the argument that you want to be able to at least get what you're used to. and. Um, Absolutely, and that's what they're saying with this, that you obviously you can just completely switch off that X track and you get back to exactly where you were. But I've got to say, from my point of view, the people that are most engaging in the film versus digital war are the film people. I think the digital people on the whole like film and just want to have something else. It's the film people that feel kind of a little, I don't know, maybe like... Uh, hostage to the hype that yeah. keep coming back and saying no no it's not as good as film and it doesn't have this and it doesn't have that and it's like you know what i mean get over it like film you know there's I, nothing they, wrong with film if you want to shoot with film shoot with film look, for crying out look at the last two uh, american cinematographer issues right L- just look scroll through the articles just look for a digital acquired film there's apart from um what is it the um uh, the danny boyle film uh, 127 hours, whatever it is. 128 hours. 120 hours, whatever it is. Whereas, yeah. that, that, that X amount of hours. That's obviously some film, but it's also um, um, DSLR and um, um, SI 2K. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot, all of the, a lot of the features, a lot of the stuff that's shooting around is still, you know, their film acquisition is, you know, apart from obviously 3D stuff, all the 2D acquisition is uh, a lot of it is film still. So, you know, 
maybe the fact that this is a film, the digital war is kind of you know more in our minds than actually in reality. It may sort of exist in, in on producers' computers, but uh, well, you know, it's uh, not really. Yeah, I mean, we'd also pointed out that other podcasts where Disney was saying they only have one film in the entire slate of all Disney productions is yeah. actually on film at the moment. True, but so, maybe Disney is doing an awful lot of three uh, D and. You know, maybe Disney's doing more 3D than other people. I, I, I'm bored to death with people complaining about uh, whether or not red, or for that matter, Ari or whatever matches um, mm. uh, film. I think it, you know, it's got to a point that it's valid, and then you just choose what you want. And quite frankly, uh, you know, just really don't see the point past that. Yeah. So look, I'm really looking forward to stuff like this, HDRX and Magic Motion, not because of the geek fest and the pixel peeping and uh, you know staring into oscilloscopes and and um, um, test charts and dynamic range charts. It's really going to be about what are we going to do with this? What interesting looks can we can we get out of this? And uh, um, and where people can take it you so know, creatively. To that, to that end. Um They've actually posted an R3D uh, single frame. Um, of <laughs> yes, a, a I was line. hoping for a little bit more than one frame, but yeah, we got a frame. Well, yeah, it's, it's something. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, this is um, something that's actually shot by uh, Greg Williams, I believe. Now, mm. Greg is someone we interviewed in London. Um, he's uh, a really good, a traditionally, you know, photographer that's moved into shooting, firstly. Uh, still material with a red, and with then, a red. And then mm. some moving stuff. He had a short film out that was um, pretty controversially interesting. Mm. Um, and so apparently this is from... Now, do you know much about this actual shoot, this motion installation? No, not at all. Nothing. But, be... <laughs> I, th- I think the, the bottom line is that uh, what they've given us is a really nice shot, studio obviously uh, shot of a tiger, but that's nice because it's got very fine detailed hair. I think this just goes to a point that we were previously discussing, which is that you are not going to get a 5K frame like this from a film camera, certainly not from a 16mm film camera, and even from a 35 you wouldn't get it this clean. Um, so so this is a different thing. It's not film, it's different, but it's great to get that. Now, dovetailing in with that is that while this file is available for download, and we'll give you a link for it, if you do download that uh, zipped file, you don't actually get like a JPEG or something. What you get is an R3D, R3D. file. Mm. That R3D file is not going to even open in some of the earlier uh, builds of things like Red Cine X. So if you've got like build on a 262 or something, it's not going to open. You need to go to the new uh, builds. So for 356 example, 356, e. yeah. Which is there is Mac and Windows versions, obviously, of that. Uh, and it's the first version that is um, Epic friendly, I think. Yeah, now those are available on the um, the Red website. Yep. Um, obviously, beta, obviously, uh, completely, you know, preceding the camera itself. But um, it's not actually on Red support page. I think you actually have to follow the links either on Red user or obviously we've got them in the show notes here. Right, because there is a build 356, and build 356 is not going to. Um, be it, you need 356E. E, yeah, okay. that's my understanding. Yeah. So, again, so probably an alpha show. more than... than um... Yeah, true, true. So, um, anyway, look, it would be good to open it up, have a look at the, the, the size of the frame, look at 5K, uh, and I guess it's uh, an HD, it's HDR file, yeah? Yeah, the, the Epic, um, the, the one we're talking about, the 356E, mm. actually comes in 32 and 64-bit flavours for both Mac and Windows. So, if you listen to this and you... A, um, uh, a Windows user, or for that matter, just want to try out the 64-bit version, do that. But as I say, or as Jason said, don't click on the 
356 version on the support page, the normal place you'd go to because that, in fact, um, won't support the Epic. It's a special build. Mm. Did, just away from all the technical crap, what do you think the picture looked like? Uh, well, it looks as good as you ever. I mean, it's a very con- it's, <laughs> I mean, it's a very controlled subject. It's a uh, tiger. With whiskers. With whiskers uh, against black background. It's, you know, very hard to tell. Nice and sharp. It's kind of reminiscent of the early red pictures we saw, right? Mm. The um, car. Yes, cars and or lizards and all the rest of the stuff we've seen. Interesting creatures. <laughs> uh, no, like, I think it's great. It's um, I just want to see a bit more of HDRX and love to see moving footage and love to see something full frame, 4 or 5K at 120 frames a second or whatever we can get. I'd be glad to see. Should we read anything into the fact we don't see that right now? Uh, it must exist because Mark's Epic must have been shooting it. Uh, Mark's Epic was shooting it. Was it? Yeah, this because... This was done on 006? No, no, no. I'm saying not this tiger, but I'm saying like Mark prior to the camera being stolen was shooting things like the... Because one of the things that we lost when Mark lost the camera is we lost some of the awesome footage he was shooting with it. Yeah. Because he was in France or wherever. And yeah, he was shooting downhill skiers at uh, yeah. 120 frames or whatever and was keen to get that to us. But uh, So I wonder why Red hasn't put out more clips to look up. Well, look, obviously maybe the whole HDRX side of things is still evolving and um, we don't want motion out there yet until that, that back end of, and the magic motion and all that sort of stuff is, uh, I don't know, civilian friendly. I'm not sure. I'm sure it won't be long because theoretically these cameras are uh, starting to get out there. Yeah. Shortly. Theoretically, if we're talking uh, literally only over the, over the holidays, um, Jim said we should be, you know, the stage two should be shipping in February. So, you know, a couple of weeks, theoretically, till um, early batch of uh, stage two starts getting out the door. This is not, that isn't, this is not, an, uh, you know, this is not a week's old piece of information. This is, you know, literally uh, a week or so ago over the break, just before Christmas, I think. So, theoretically... Start looking. Start checking your doorstep, uh, Mike. I've got to say, one of the really funky things you can do with that. You um, talk, I'll eat now. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> one of the funky things you can do with that uh, tiger footage is, um, is actually have a look at it uh, full size, which is um, pretty cool. Um, the uh, you can also output it as a still, of course, if you want to actually then do something like you did, which is stick it in the uh, show notes. Mm. So. Um, is this uh, so? What's the deal then with Storm and further releases of that being able to open? Storm is releasing uh, multiple versions, uh, not every day, but like there's just new versions coming out. Yep, much, of, uh, of the beta. The time, yeah. Yep. Um, Can you open this in Storm? Great question. I haven't tested that yet. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was too busy um, uh, outputting a um, an image at one to one into Photoshop to have a look at it. Mm. Um, I've got to say that it's um, fine detail on the whiskers of the um, of the uh, tiger are pretty awesome there is a, a tiny 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 artifact of green in the vertical um, which I don't know if it's a debayer effect or what but the trouble is if I say that then people like Jim are going to say we're not going to post things because people pixel fuck with them and it's not so going they, to be chromatic aberration is it that's, that's it's generally that's bayonet. generally sort of more of a cyan kind of a shift now this is a green vertical shift exactly what you'd expect from a deep bayer if it was a chart you'd expect that i think it's a pretty clean image um oh look absolutely but we shouldn't really be saying much different 
because this is the same chip that we've effectively got in the uh, in the Red MX. So, yeah. You know. Yeah. If, exactly. If this was, there should be really no no not much difference apart from obviously field of view, slightly larger chip, and a complete lack of bloody noise and film grain. And shit. Yeah. Exactly. But I mean, obviously, you're you're seeing that. You know, you will never ever see that image as 5k you know at this at this stage anyway in in, in the near future no, see, I can it see in it's 4, 16 5. bit in, in uh, photoshop looking awfully nice sure just like everyone at home you're never ever going to be able to see this stuff at uh, 5k uh, well, in the near future what you know? about uh, red ray maybe i can yep, yep. anyway yep. moving on um <clears throat> So uh, coming up later in the show in the uh, Red Room, we're going to be talking um, after... Sorry, we've been indulging ourselves with cake and... Uh, and sorry, it's rude. And banter. Um, yeah, so coming up later in the Red Room, we're going to be um, discussing uh, the workflow of Fright Night, uh, Fright Night 3D, the re-boot, uh, if you like, or the redo of the... Um, uh, the, do you remember it from the 1980s, I think it was? I, I remember the film. I've never seen it. I was trying to think of the other um, film like it that, I'm, uh, that I was confusing it with. So we have uh, Chad Andrews, who's the Director of Mobile Services from 16.9. Um, 16.9 is a company... 16.19. 16.19, I don't say. 16, yeah. Sorry, 16.9, yeah. 16.19. Um, this is a company that does a lot of on-set work and workflow. I, I've run into these guys before at various other companies. They're super bright. And um, when we were uh, doing one of the earlier podcasts, I mentioned something. They sent me an email and I said, I'd love to have them on the show. So this film isn't out yet. It's a way off, but it was shot on dual red uh, MXs. And the film um, is uh, going into post and presumably will be there for a while. But imagine a mirrored rig uh, MX system. So like a standard kind of um, top of the line MX setup that you'd expect to have. Yep. Uh, that is um, being coupled with... Uh, um, a really good post workflow because obviously you're going to generate a hell of a lot of material. And this is what really interests me actually to talk to these guys about, which is the workflow for um, getting through this stuff because it's not just a problem of like uh, whether I can get something set up correctly on set, though that is obviously a big deal. Um, what you have to really worry about is a lot of stuff to do with um, just making it work when you're punching through the material at the rate that you do. Now, this is going to become even more of a problem when you get to Epic, and I discussed that with you briefly, but just to give you some stats, Fright Night was about 50 days of first unit um, and then even more in second unit. And uh, because they had two cameras running, of course, they're shooting um, uh, full 4K, you know, like uh, 4096 by 2304 because it was 16 by 9. Yep. So 30 megabytes of frame or 60 megabytes of frame if you um, think about it in terms of one second of um, 60 meg per second. Times two. Yeah, well, 30 meg per second, 60 meg Sorry. per two. Yep. yep. But that's assuming you've only got one rig going, obviously as we've seen a lot of these productions, you go to two rigs for second unit and suddenly it's mm. double even that. They were shooting all this to 16 gig cards. Um, and uh, so, the, you know, generating a sensible amount of material on a big film that I haven't seen much about the film because obviously it's only in pre, other than to say it has an interesting cast. We were looking at it before the show went to air, so it sounds like it could be... Um, it's kind of a fun horror film. I'm sure it'll go really well at the box office when the first one came out. So this one um, has uh, some Australians in it. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, um. Uh, Tony Collette, Colin Farrell, David Tennant, D- Dr. Who. Yep. So, so, yeah, it's got some good people involved, and uh, yeah, so it should be really interesting. Uh, the cinematography cinematographer, I'm going to a bit butcher his name, I know, I shouldn't have even tried. Javier Aguerasorob, sorry, <laughs> who uh, shot um, uh, Eclipse, New Moon, uh, The Road, 
uh, and a few other things. So it should be really interesting. So for those of you that are doing serious productions or those of you that, for example, um, are going on set to work in either the capacity of uh, dailies, as these guys were, or um, could be DIT, I should actually also point out, Company 3 did the colour grading on this and they provided, as you'll hear in the interview, um, colour management. Paradise Effects provided the 3D actual rigs and the DITs. So the actual DITs had some stuff. I mean, it was a very collaborative effort. So you Mm. can imagine if you've got somebody handling daily, somebody handling colour grading and somebody handling DIT, all of those groups need to work very closely together, which they did, to get a consistent workflow of the kind of uh, professionalism that they got on um, on this. So, so while we're talking to Chad, we should do a shout out to the other companies involved because they all worked very well together to get this um, happening. Yeah, let's. Uh, well, let's do that now. Let's cross straight to the uh, the red room. You are entering the red room. So, Chad, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. So you've uh, been uh, working on Fright Night, a stereoscopic feature produced in, um, in red and in, in using the MX cameras. And uh, tell me the role of 1619 on that film. Well, we were contracted in order to uh, provide dailies. Uh, so what we provided uh, was, first of all, the entire editorial. So we provided uh, a total of five edits. And then we provided uh, some data wrangling equipment a color correction machine, and uh, supporting infrastructure and database support in order to uh, receive files from set, uh, process and color correct them, and deliver them in uh, both as uh, MXS uh, 115 dailies for editorial and uh, H.264's right-eye only for uh, executive review. Now, you were working in concert with Paradise FX, which were providing the cameras, I believe, and also the DITs, is that right? And then Company 3 that was obviously going to be doing the grading? That's correct. Uh, Company 3 provided a colorist, Alex Bickle, as well as uh, Custom Lutz and uh, and some some database support. So who was managing the uh, color space monitoring and the color space management for the project? Was that then Company 3? That is correct. Right. Uh, company then, 3 provided a, a proprietary lot, uh, right. as well as other color. Uh, and they ultimately are responsible for the debayering and uh, turnover of VFX and for the, uh, the DI. So um, how did it go? Fright Night was about, what, 50 days of principal unit and a bit more of second unit? Is that right? Uh, yes, I think it was uh, 49 days of principal and about uh, somewhere around 14 or 15 of second unit. And, and how did it, yeah went well? Yeah, it was it was a wonderful experience. Um, you know, again, we worked in a very close concert with uh, Paradise and, and Company Three, and you know, on a very complicated job like that, to have three vendors, um, you know, working in close quarters uh, and and working harmoniously is a feat unto itself. And I think that we we all should be very proud of uh, how we carried that off. And uh, and I, I think that we did a good job of uh, of exceeding the expectations of the studio, which is ultimately how you're judged. I'm I'm really impressed with 1619 and just your sort of technical uh, prowess and kind of uh, workflow knowledge. So I was wondering if you could just walk us through the kind of workflow that you set up there for this part of the film. Um, so obviously you've got left and right cameras. What were they shooting on in terms of media? Uh, they were shooting on on uh, 16 gigabyte. Um, CF cards, 
And Paradise provided a, a, a DIT. His name was uh, Robert Howie. Uh, and he ultimately would, would take the... Um, we, we had a, a folder structure that we'd agreed upon in advance. And we created a little script at 1619 that Paradise could run. And it would make sure that all the folders were uh, created properly on the capture station. So that the, you know, the actual files themselves were in a hierarchy so that, you know, for example, they would shoot uh, inverted rigs sometimes. They would do a steady cam, and, and the cameras would be oriented differently than the normal rig. And because of that, any scripts that, that, that we wrote or Company 3 wrote in order to be able to conform those files and do the right DVEs on them would have to, that would rely on the files themselves being in a, in a, a constant uh, logical file structure. So we'd agree, agreed upon that in advance, and the DIT would make sure that all the uh, data was captured, copied, and checksummed um, onto ultimately a rated shuttle drive, a CalDigit dock. Um, he would take one of the CalDigit one terabyte drives, and twice a day we would get what we, we defined as a split, which was essentially just half a day's uh, shoot. And uh, the, the first... Uh, split of dailies with leave set on a CalDigit terabyte drive, um, averaging about 300 gigabytes for left eye, right eye combined per split. Uh, we had as, met, as much as around 600 gigabytes and, uh, you know, as little as 80. Uh, so that would, that would leave uh, set and go through transportation driver. And audio, by the way, would be recorded on a Cantar to DVD RAM. Um, we would get the camera reports, sound reports, script notes, uh, the DVD RAM with the audio, and the CalDigit terabyte drive. Uh, it would be put into a, a, just a Pelican case and driven through transportation across town to uh, a production, uh, post-production facility that we took over in downtown Albuquerque uh, called uh, Production Central. And uh, we would receive that uh, terabyte. Well, first of all, we would receive it, and, of course, one thing to keep in mind when you're running a mobile lab is that it is, in fact, a lab. And there are some considerations, even if you're out in the middle of the desert, that you need to have in order to run it logically and securely. And uh, so we had very strict protocols for receiving and tracking physical assets, such as when we received uh, physical media from the set, including the DVD-RAM physical disks, including the, uh, you know, the, the shuttle drives. So we would log all of that in. Uh, we would then hook up the CalDigit drive uh, through eSATA to a, uh, a One Beyond data wrangler that we had that was running Windows 7. And we had that connected uh, through fiber to a, uh, a, ter- uh, a, 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 a fan um, that was, um, it, it's, it's, um, it's escaping me what the, what the fan was called. I'll get back to that in a second. But we were managing the fan through MetaSAN and uh, and it was a 48 terabyte SAN, and we, we would copy the picture files directly from the, the CalDigit doc into a, a mirrored identical file structure. We talked about the folder structure uh, earlier. We'd have the exact folder structure copied onto uh, the, the SAN. Uh, and then meanwhile, while we were copying, because that could take up to three hours depending on the amount of material we got from set, we would scan all of our uh, all of our, our reports from set. So the camera reports, script reports, uh, sound reports, we would actually physically scan those and create PDFs uh, and organize them per split. Then we would copy the audio across onto the SAN as well. 
And once the, the picture and, and audio were, were, uh, were copied across, we would then deliver that to uh, the company through Colorist, who would uh, pull, extract the metadata from, the, uh, from the, the actual files themselves, the red files. And you'd also extract the metadata from a, uh, a CSV file that was provided from the, the sound recorders. And we put that into a, a, a proprietary custom database. And uh, then he would go and match it. He would, he would align the shots uh, in scratch, uh, check them against the, the, the reports from set, make sure that all the takes were present and accounted for, labeled correctly, et cetera. And then he would go through a grading pass, uh, which is generally about two to one real time in order to, uh, to do the grade. So after he did the grade, he would match eyes, um, which would be usually about another one-time real-time in order to match the color between right eye and left eye. Right eye being um, the primary eye because it was a direct line from the lens of the camera to the, uh, to the set or to the, to the shot, whereas the left eye was through a beam splitter and tended to be a little bit more uh, green and, and uh, have a little softer focus than the right eye. So uh, once the eyes were matched... Uh, we would then lay off the uh, a 1920 by 1080 dual stream uh, left eye right eye uh, sequence. Essentially, we'd lay the shots off uh, in sort of Daly's roll onto an HD cam SR tape um, through dual red rockets that were in our simulated scratch. Now, the reason that that we we chose a tape based workflow in this case is because uh, at the time that we were doing this, which we we finished it in early October, uh, the transcoding speeds for stereoscopic um, AVID media were over 5 to 1 real-time. So right. we, we literally, we were shooting on average 2 to 3 hours a day of material. So just, you know, we didn't have 15 hours to just transcode AVID dailies out of our scratch, which we needed for our, our, uh, our grade. So we made the decision to do the one-time uh, output to HDCAMSR which also had other benefits in terms of having a time code reference to turn over to marketing and that kind of thing. Uh, and then we would then do another one-time real-time uh, digitize um, of, of the material into the AVID and create the DNX-115 media. Uh, the ALE that we received in order to do that came from the proprietary database that we, had, that we used to... Uh, originally, we extracted the metadata from the files and put it into that database with the CSV um, right. from the Cantar. Then we would actually merge that with the with data out of the scratch after the after the uh, the shots had been lined up and, and uh, metadata had been uh, sort of altered and, and appended, and then we would use that to create the clips that we would digitize off of the HD Cam SR tapes. So uh, the end result is we'd have uh, side by side at 1920 by by 1080. We did a little magic between the deck and the Avid in order to you know to take those two full 1920 by 1080, um, you know, full frame images on the HD cam SR tapes that were in dual stream and to make those into side by side, uh, avid frames, 1920 by 1080s that were 1080 pixels high and 960 wide, um, two images side by side. Uh, so that, that's how we arrived at avid picture. Um, then we would import the, uh, the MXF files off of the Camtar disc and we would, uh, we would then sync, through atomic time, uh, common time code reference that was recorded on set, time of day that was fed to both the, uh, the, the cameras in the red rigs and the, uh, the camera. 
So then from there, we would do, uh, we would encode H.264s um, off of the DNX-115 AVID dailies, um, ride-eye only. We would do a ride-eye resize and put a, a, a watermark on it, and we would deliver those through, through the, um, on the PICS, um, which is Executive Dailies Review System. So that was that was pretty much a, a, our, our normal. We also would do a, just you know going old school. We did a DVD for archive purposes <laughs> for the studio. And uh, the other half of this, which is extraordinarily important when you're talking about digital jobs, is we it, it's called archiving, but I like to refer to refer to it as creation of digital negative um, because it's that important. It's uh, so after we had copied the the. Uh, the picture and sound into our our file structure, which again we're always very concerned about having a perfect folder structure. Once that existed on the SAN, um, we would put a couple of other files in there for that that you know like our copy logs. Um, we always verify all of our copies and check all of our logs to make sure that all the data that we copied is perfectly integritous. Uh, plus, we put things like the AVID ALEs in there and some other uh, internal documents, and then we would. Uh, we would archive that to LTO4, uh, to do all LTO4s. One was a primary, one was a backup. And so you're getting about, what, 70, separate... getting about 70 megabytes a second of those? Uh, this is about 70 megabytes a second is what we got out of there. Yeah. ESATA, um, actually, yeah, it was, it was, uh, well, these were actually internal. The, the, uh, the two LTO4 drives that we had were IBM LTO4 drives. They were internal to the one beyond Data Wrangler. Um, we got about 70 to, 70 to 80 megabytes a second both on the ESAT, a copy off of the CalDigits, and on the, uh, on, to the LTO4s and simultaneously. So we'd get 70 megabytes per second to both at the same time. So how, many, and, uh, how, many, how much R3D camera negative in terms of terabytes do you think you generated from the film? Because you had two it was cameras. Right about twenty five. About twenty five terabytes. It was uh, just a bit under that. I think it was like twenty four by the time we were done. Okay. And, uh, yeah. yeah. So can I just go back for a second and ask you a couple of questions? Because sure. that's, a, that's a great pipeline, and I agree the archiving is key. Just a couple of points. I didn't want to interrupt you as you were talking because it was a really good summary. Um, when you were on set, presumably there was on-set review. Now, were you using something like a Q-take or that for just for the, actually looking at the takes as they were happening? Yes, and I don't, I don't want to take credit for that because that was provided. There's actually a, a video assist guy named Adam Barth that was on set, um, but they, they, there was a Q-take HD on set, and they were just taking the 720, um, you know, 720p signal directly out of the video taps and Is, recording those on, on the Q-take HD. So they weren't actually QCing directly off the cards. Is the Q-take data, therefore, not required past the day of the review? In other words, if you were on set, once you had your Q-take drive full, you just delete it? Because there was no real valid workflow reason for keeping that, was there? No, it's really just for review. I mean, it's just it's, it's for onset review. It, it really has no value um, throughout the pipeline. And uh, secondly, when you got those CF cards, the 16 gig cards, and you were, uh, I know that this was done um, by the DIT, but you said that there was a checksum. What were they actually using to copy that data that would provide the checksum? They they uh they had some uh, I don't think I should say that some proprietary stuff that uh, I I would leave to that question to the paradise. Um, okay. Because it is important in this stage to make sure that 
because um, it's it's a little too easy, I think, to just think that you're copying the data, but you do want to check that the data has been successfully copied, especially as those uh, CF cards would presumably be cycled each day. That um, yeah, not not each day, but yeah, they were they were cycled within a two or three day period. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the you know, there's a lot of interesting discussions here. Uh, you know, where it comes to the checksum, and you know, there are different kinds of checksums, and you know, the the re- reality is. You know, some checksums require double the time. You're actually literally reading it, writing and reading the file to make sure that it's the same on the card as the copy. And obviously, if you're taking double the time, it, it requires, uh, you know, double the, the turnover time. And so I, I know on, on Fright Night, generally what, what would be, you know, I'm going to leave that for Paradise, actually. I, again, I, I'm trying to be sensitive to another vendor and, and, you know, what they want to reveal publicly is sort of their... It, it, well, let me ask you this then. They, in, in the scenario that you outlined, uh, it was a good scenario, but obviously somewhat um, the perfect case scenario. For example, let's take time code. It's not uncommon, even in a very well-run uh, project, to have some discrepancy, even if it's a frame or two delay, between the time code coming off the audio uh, guy's stuff that, or even the left and right cameras not being um, 100% uh, perfect. Is there any kind of point where is that sort of adjusted and checked to make sure that yeah. you're actually in sync yeah well, one thing that's very important to uh understand when you're choosing a vendor to manage your your digital workflows is that none of this gets tracked i mean you know, an avid or scratch are essentially metadata databases i mean you're you're consolidating your metadata in those databases but it's very important to have a much more robust and functional metadata um, backbone than just relying on something like an Avid or a Scratch. Uh, we had some proprietary uh, database functionality uh, in the center of the workflow. So I, I've referenced it already that that uh, time code uh, and other metadata was extracted from the files, and we had other metadata that was being added from CSV, from sound, and then metadata that we were adding from reports and that kind of thing. And the, the central repository for that was an external database um, that housed all of the metadata and allowed us to do things like generate an ALE and ultimately track things like offsets between time codes um, so that, you know, that, that would ultimately be used in the DI in order to conform um, and would track, you know, on a file. So it would, it would find the file, uh, link to the file, and then apply those offsets based upon those scripts that came out of that central metadata repository. And from the red point of view, you were shooting what, 4K, 16 by 9 or 2, 3, what was it, the yeah. sort of format? It was 4K, 16 by 9. And then as the uh, files were being reviewed, how was it being reviewed? Obviously, the red file inherently, the R3D, it's metadata, but was it uh, using uh, Red Gamma? Were you using Rec 709? How are you sort of looking at this stuff moving forward? Red Gamma. Um, yeah, it was, it was, it was, they were using Red Gamma on set, and they were, they were generally what, what Paradise was doing um, was twice a day, um, the, uh, the DIT would, would uh, on, his sta- on his Mac uh, system would, would uh, go, go over shots in Red City X um, and, uh, yeah, and, and just apply looks in, in red, using Red Gamma and Red Color. And, and then would uh, generally export TIFFs references that would come to the set on in, in a folder on the actual uh, CalDigit drive, and then the colorist would look at those for reference and then grade 
essentially, you know, in a combination of both, the, you know, notes in, in philosophy that he shared and had conferred with the DIT and a combination of the actual TIFF reference shots. And when you were discussing getting the stuff into the Avid, you were mentioning, of course, that the uh, SR was a chosen path because the transcode times for the stereo Avid media would have been, you know, five to one. Um, if you're doing this right. again tomorrow for a new film with a similar kind of setup, would you still go SR? Would you go differently? Uh, you know, there are there are considerations. Like I said, the delivery and the marketing is, is is something that that really needs to be worked out. And that that's a it's an interesting point of evolution in digital workflows because it, it seems like a minor point, um, but it, it's it's a pretty big deal that you, you need to be able to, to deliver files out of your pipeline to marketing in a way that is non-disruptive to editorial or to finish, but that contains all of your, your, your pertinent metadata and all of your files. So, you know, uh, there aren't a lot of, there are people out there that are, that do have delivery pipelines that are, that are hanging a marketing department off right now. But I think for most studios and most environments right now, just having a deliverable for, because a lot of, a lot of, you have to understand a lot of trailer houses, for example, are using pretty old systems. They'll use mm-hmm. like an old Final Cut. And, you know, they may not have the ability to work with, uh, you know, with a pipeline. Uh, they, they may need or, or prefer to receive files uh, or receive tapes in order to, to digitize off of a cut that they say put together off of the PIC system. Uh, so, you know, that, that consideration alone, I, I would want to consult with the studio and with the producers and see if there was a way that we could, uh, you know, provide an, an elegant solution for marketing. But for now, that alone may be enough of an impetus to, to make a decision to go with HDSR. Right. I mean, it seems to me that, uh, a lot of stuff, especially when you're shooting stereo, so literally both cameras are, are mean that you're just basically generating twice as much material, and that's before you even look at stuff that might be slow motion. Um, it seems that just literally making sure you've got a good eSATA setup or at least something above FireWire 800 has become essential to um, to your kind of Russia's workflow. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I think on you talk about what we do for future considerations, um, you know, especially with the Red Epics. Uh, you know, on the horizon and the 5K files that are going to be three to four times bigger than uh, what we dealt with on Fright Night, you know, it's, it's essential to have as fast a, a uh, you know, a connection as possible. And, and you know, I, I would think that if we're working on future jobs, a fast rather than ESATA connection should be, uh, you know, pretty, pretty standard. Because things have been evolving, um, obviously R3D files inherently come with a... Uh QuickTime, which is basically QuickTime wrapper on the R3D that allows you to look at them at sort of low, medium, and high resolution. Are they any use anymore to a company like you? I mean, do you ever go to those QuickTime proxies? They, they work to us just because, uh, you know, I think for, you know, if you're using like an AMA workflow um, with an Avid, or, you know, I, I could see using that depending on the job. But for, for Flight Night in particular, I can speak to that and say that because we had dual, rocket, dual red rocket support on the scratch, we were able to QC full frame 1920 by 30 left eye, right eye images. So we had no need for any kind of proxy there. Um, we, when we just, you know, uh, there were definitely occasions that we needed to go back and we'd see something on the scratch. We'd want to look at the original red file on a different system just to make sure that, that like an artifact wasn't being introduced by the, by the, the scratch. So we would do that on the data running loader. Um, 
and you know, that, even though that didn't have uh, a red rocket in it, it would take maybe about thirty seconds to uh, to you know render a clip so that you could play it back in Red City X. Um, so we were able to view this, the, the the actual nineteen twenty by ten eighty individual left eye right eye files on Red, Red City X on the Data Wrangler. So we never really had a need to go back to any kind of proxy file. And on something like Fright Night, I mean, I know this is going to sound like an odd question, but it's the same ilk as the proxies. Do you think there's benefit in having um, an actual clapper, like an actual mechanical, somebody stands up there and and uh, has either an electronic or manual clapper? Oh, oh I, think, I think there's definitely a value for that. Yeah, in fact, there's, we've been looking at some technologies that, that uh, we've had a previous discussion about like having an iPad and being able to make notations that were um, related to kind of a smart slate. Um, there, there's definitely, I think, I, I think, it, well, one thing we, we definitely found um, is on 3D individual shots, uh, you know, we, we did see sometimes the actual cameras would start and have an offset. Uh, right. So often that was the way that we, that we would judge where actual sync was and where the offset was between the left eye, right eye shot. And in some cases, this is just kind of a production problem. You'll see this happens from time to time. You know, there's a physical cable that needs to go from the time of day time code generator into, um, you know, first the smart slate and then the, the Cantar sound recording device and then the, the individual red cameras. And sometimes, you know, the camera would come unplugged on a, ca- on a camera or because of, a, you know, a technical problem that wouldn't be plugged in for a series of takes. So having a reference that you're able to go back and actually determine proper sync is, is something that was very helpful to us in the daily process. I think you were shooting pretty much uh, 5600, though the word Fright Night or the title Fright Night indicates that maybe it wasn't all under daylight. But was that right? Were you shooting 5600? Yes. Yeah, yeah, the, the cameras preferred 5600K white point, and that, that, that is what, what we were using. Obviously, you're going to want to do a, a, some amount of grading, either because uh, you've shot at 5600 and you want to adjust for that, or just to balance left and right eye. What's the environment that you've got the director looking at the rushes when he's trying to judge performance? And when he's judging performance from the previous day's shooting or the previous morning's shooting, is that in stereo or just in mono? Oh, you know, you know to be honest with you, I'd have to. I, I was involved so little in the process of what, what was happening on set. Um, you know, with the Paradise guys. When I was out there, I, I saw them looking at at, uh, at individual, usually right-eye shots for performance. I didn't see them looking in, it, in, in stereo, so I would assume that's probably what they normally did, but I wouldn't want to make any assumptions of what was going on when I wasn't on set. Because your deliverables were actually, you were providing stereo deliverables as well as mono deliverables, right? Because you even mentioned that you did an old-fashioned DVD. Well, you know, we, we were providing uh, the deliverables that we, for the Avid. It was side-by-side Avid dailies. We had JVC passive um, polarized displays um, in, in the actual grading suite, and we did have the DP and director by from time to time to look at brushes, and we had an active, um, an, an active setup. So you're actually looking at the way an active, you know, for anybody who doesn't know, probably most people listening to this do, but... The way an active display works as opposed to a polarized passive is that you, you have the, the lenses uh, of your glasses temporarily go off and on. So you're only looking at one full frame at a time with one eye as the, the black image alternates. And your persistence of vision holds the images together and, puts, and able, your mind is able to put together the images into a 3D image. 
So that was the professional gaming environment that we had for grading. And, and we would do a QC pass as well. The, the company Three Colors was also responsible for QCing. Uh, generally, you would do a pass and look at it as he was grading and put the glasses on and off, and then he would keep the glasses on and watch everything as it laid off the HPK MSR. Um, that was kind of how we did the, the QC. Uh, and of course, you know, you're looking, when you're looking at two full frames alternating um, between eyes, that's the best viewing environment you're going to have in, in the dailies process or in the, in the production process, uh, as opposed to on the Avid dailies, which were uh, DNX 115 side-by-side uh, -side images. Again, you have an, an individual 1920 by 1080 frame, but it's divided into two 960 by 1080 images. So you're only looking at a half-res image at a time because it's being blown up through a resize. Uh, and then the, the TV itself, the JVC TV, had a side-by-side -side mode that would then reconstitute the left-eye, right-eye images into one image, um, and it would polarize it so that, that you know one eye of your glasses would see an image far better than the other eye. And that was how, how a passive display in the editorial works. And, and I will note that, that one kind of point of interest is you do want to rely on passive displays and editorial because if you try to watch more than a couple hours of active 3D <laughs> in a day, your your head's going to explode. <laughs> yeah, really I, I, I must admit I hate active glasses in uh, in that review sense. Yeah. Hey, um, I guess the company three did the VFX turnover, or did you have to provide anything during the shoot uh, for like pre comps or we tests? Did, or we did, and admittedly, it was unsophisticated on this run. Um, you know. We, you know, there are definitely tools out there that we, we could have used to automate this, but generally what we turned over was at the request of the studio for testing. So, right. for example, they, they had a DI test that they put together. And in, in this case, we just generated an, an, an EDL out of the Avid with the left eye, right eye file names. And I just went through and, and based upon the camera roll, found the individual and shoot day. I, I just found the individual shots, organized them, put them into folders and then deliver those either on FireWire or some of them we FTP. Uh, again, we are aware of ways to automate that and make that, that quicker, you know, if we're going to do a large turnover. But the most I ever turned over was, you know, 20 or 30 shots at a time. Um, but for the broader turnover, there are scripts that Company 3 maintains that they are automating turnover uh, from. So they, they're basically finding the, in batches, they find the red left eye, right eye files, they create DPXs out of that, debayer them, um, apply their own LUTs that are custom to this job, and then they, they deliver those, uh, tracking it with their, their proprietary database. Right. Well, look, it sounds like you, uh, you had that workflow down pretty tight. Thank you so much for taking time to walk through it with us, and we look forward to seeing the film, which presumably will be out uh, when the poor VFX guys have had a chance to uh, have a crack at it. <laughs> yeah, I know, I hear you. But uh, yeah, it was a great experience, so thank you for having me on. Uh, you know, and, you know, to just leave it with, with a, a final kind of spot for the future of these kinds of workflows. We're, we're very passionate about, you know, first of all, it's a very cool time to be doing what we're doing because, you know, the last hundred years of filmmaking has been, even though there were incredible advances in technology, the actual workflow and all the different walled gardens of a linear process were pretty much the same. And I, I think we're seeing the first real radical paradigm shift right now in the way that these these Networked environments are being used to consolidate metadata and add functionality to collaboration for feature films. And uh, there's still an ad hoc uh, nature to a lot of these jobs. And it's, it, you know, what we are evolving, uh, as well as some other vendors and studios, is uh, a much more robust central metadata architecture. Um, 
the, the backbone for where your metadata lives and how it can be used by multiple professionals across the network. Um, that, those types of, of backbones need to be file aware. So you need to the metadata database needs to track where every version of a file is and every different uh, you know type of transcoded version. It needs to uh, to be able to be aware of where things are archived, uh, and it, it it needs to essentially the goal in mind be able to take all of the work of the various professionals throughout the the run of the show and be able to conform that quickly and efficiently, maintaining as much work, including color science, as possible, uh, in order to turn over the show as fluidly as possible. And we're committed to that pursuit, and a lot of what we're putting together for future shows draws upon our our uh, experience at our our past shows but it's also being put into um, architecture of metadata uh, networks database that, that we're, we're going to really ride our, our future shows on. Cool. Well, thanks so much for taking time to talk to us. I really appreciate it. I appreciate it, too. Thanks so much. Thanks, Chad, for doing that. That was really great. Thank you. Uh, it was a bit sort of cagey about the whole kind of you know checksums sort well, of well i think he was trying to be nice to paradise effects but I, i've got to say that checksums and that as he mentioned that whole idea of value i mean you know it isn't like there's just one way to do a checksum and so i think it's something that we might look into more in future episodes of uh of the rc just to check out basically some of the better ways to do that kind of stuff and i should add that this kind of workflow stuff that we had this um this whole interview about is exactly what we're talking about this term in uh, FX PhD. We're looking at both stereo workflow, ironically, in a stereo production course, including something that you um, you shot, sir. Um, your, oh, right. Uh, yes. Your stereo... One of my short little, little shorts for you guys. Yes. yes. That was good fun. Um, and uh, we're also doing stereo, uh, production workflow that's got nothing to do with stereo, like just general workflow. But that issue of uh, file transfer validation and checking properly that things have been... Um, uh, cleared because obviously as in the case of the CF cards in this shot they're going to get wiped at some point yeah a lot of the time it's a clapper loader who brings his own laptop and drags the files and just sees the little bar progress and that's it so I'm guessing you know it needs to probably be a slightly deeper process than that yeah yeah that's not <laughs> not to say that's what they did on this um, but uh, no no yeah no, no I'm talking about just in the average general run of the mill the average be, general you know, yeah sort of say TVC or short or whatever it's generally not a data trained person doing it it's more someone who's in the camera department being kind of dragged into those duties well I think we sort of need to train that person up I mean you could say a similar thing about the person that does the loading I mean the mm. loader of film is not the most senior part of the camera team but it's an incredibly important job. Yeah, look, I think it's um, it's something that there should be a lot of training about. There really is there is some around, but you know, also unions probably should be getting into it as well. Not that I'm terribly union friendly, but maybe Mr. Huser has some uh, thoughts or comments or some contacts he can ask about that because there should obviously be, uh, you know, a, d- a division of the, the camera unions that will be in charge of uh, you know validating people's abilities to be able to do this stuff, and you know, obviously clap a loader and divide and been a bit of a division between clap a loader and dit because you know on some lower budget stuff or or non-union i guess it um guys get dragged into that department uh sometimes unwillingly yeah i've had a, a much longer chat than that interview with the uh, 16.9 guys in fact i did a conference call with all of them and some of that stuff's going to appear in phd because we really got into some heavy discussions yeah. one of the discussions that we didn't get to uh we cut from that interview was that the idea that 
um, sometimes on set, uh, a file, like I did when we were talking about that tiger shot, you generate a TIFF, you take that TIFF into Photoshop and you start mucking around with that. That's when you really go off the reservation because at that point you have no color management. Or if you do have color management, it's pretty cutting edge. Now, there's a group that we're going to talk to um, that do this, but it's basically uh, LUTs to ICC profiles because obviously Photoshop itself doesn't let you import a LUT. And then if a director is sort of doing hacks in Photoshop and then sending that on as this is the look I'm after, there's no trace back on that whatsoever. Um, And some of the other stuff we discussed with them was the idea of getting uh, metadata really better captured on set. And um, I went up to Bait3D in uh, Queensland and they had a really good system for getting the metadata captured from the stereo stereography side of things and also other things on set because they're the doing pretty intensive CGI as well involved in that show yeah and, and there's a lot of stuff that happens on set the trick is can you get that uh, captured and the way I use as an analogy and I discussed this with the, the other guys at 16.9 we were on this conference call you know um, when you're like let's say you're giving me directions and we're just standing in a room then obviously you might wave around you might even get a laser pointer in a um, a review session and just lays a pointer up on the screen. I want this guy moved over to here. One of the uh, side benefits of going to something like um, CineSync, which we all went to when um, when it first came out from Rising Sun Research, is that suddenly we actually had those recorded because it was obviously not designed with this specifically in mind, but you're suddenly talking to me over the internet, so you're drawing on the screen. Your scribbles are suddenly electronically happening, and I can just do a, a frame out of that. So I get a frame which had your squiggle showing the artist that may not even be in the room at the time, Yeah, this is where the director wanted the guy moved to. Now, in the room, I'm not saying that it's a better thing than having you there speaking firsthand, but if you laser pointer up at the screen in a, in a review session, we have no way of capturing that. Yeah. And so it's finding out sort of director-friendly ways that we can capture those conversations without any kind of... Because obviously when the director draws on the screen in a CineSync session, he's not thinking... I'm deliberately doing this so you're going to have a record of where I said. It's just that's yeah, a yeah, good tool it's not to holding use. me to it. It's yeah, just a good confirmation and time-saving. But on set, we have these discussions about uh, convergence and how to design um, stereo shots and a bunch of stuff. A lot of that discussion doesn't get captured electronically. And so it's really tough if you're a VFX artist having to kind of build it out later. And the there's trick, this trick with all of that is – sorry, interrupting. Is no, to, no, okay. is to, mm, Get it out of the way, you know. I mean, there's yep. so much of this stuff, and you know, and obviously, this is not reflecting on 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 on, on Chad and their guys, but there's so much of this stuff now wanting to come on set because it can on set sort of coloring and you know, um, uh, the 69 guys pre-vising and you know, yeah, the 69 guys actually say you shouldn't be actually on set coloring. They actually think yeah. you should be near set. They like the idea of a near set experience. Yeah. Um, right beside perhaps, but it's not actually in the middle of the thick of it, so that yeah. you can concentrate on the performance. Yeah, look, I mean, it's great to sort of see your dailies then come back and uh, um, and and have an interesting look that the DP was involved in, and that can be a discussion point with him and director. But you know, you don't want you know DPs off scuttling off into the corner of set working on a grade and then having you know being torn from the set and you know guys sort of asking you questions and tapping tapping okay, shoulders every five. I don't minutes. know if it was Chad that said this in the interview or in the podcast uh, in in the separate conference call I had, but. Take this. If you think about an avid session, now just, and it's going to be really hard to do this, but imagine an age where avid still seems insanely, you know, new and Mm. whatever. An avid is just an electronic way of recording the director's intention of cutting. Mm. It's a database of cut decisions. And so all that avid is, uh, well, it's all it sort of 
was to a certain group in the early days was a way of capturing director intention over editing to feed that to the neg cutter so the neg cutter could do it properly, right? And obviously that's a simplistic view of it. But in a sense, we just have to find the same way because now when you go into Avid, it doesn't seem like a chore to describe the edits, nor is, is the intent to give it over to a neg cutter because quite often there is no bloody neg to cut. But it just is a natural way of working that captures all of your editing decisions. This is a complete and utter aside, but uh, we've kind of talked about it in the past and we sort of dearly hope that someone will make a very simple on-set kind of, um, without tech getting in the way of the creativity um, tool, whereby be it on a remote or on an iPad, um, holding my holding the video split in my hand with, the, or a simple button by the video split or something that, Something to go beyond the kind of circle takes or go takes. I just mm -hmm. say, great, print that, that's terrific. Because I'm still actually now being asked, can you please give us sort of some kind of print inverted commas list so that we don't go through all this footage or we don't process all this footage. I'd love to be able to not just say that take was great, but to have the little tiny red button or something Bluetooth thing in my hand or a little yep. corner of an iPad app or something while I'm watching something to be able to just... Tap, little secret, love that little moment button, that look, that little turn, that flick of the eye, that little tiny precise little something that in the ever-lengthening digital takes that we do, in digital you just do shoot more. You just do shoot more because that's that's what you do. You're trying to keep well, the flow. Well, I think flow. this is exactly the direction it's all going in because remember that uh, Greg Williams had suggested to the Epic guys, and we presume it's going in, that there be a button. So if you're yes. filming an actress you could press the button on the shutter and it would not so much take a photo as just mark the Do video stream as this is a microphone. definitely in there. And so that's the kind of thing that you're talking about. Yes. But I'm just going to suggest that getting completely obtuse... But I want to be able to take that away from the camera. I want to have it on, know, be a red motor, yep. a tiny thing. I'm just saying at a, at a wanky intellectual level yep. that the whole of the onset experience is going to basically turn into the same database generation process that editing is. Editing yep. is just solely about database generation of capturing creative intention and then just seeing it visually and not getting in the way. Exactly. I just want to be able to find a simple way because you you are in the moment watching this yep. bit and to then, because you do create so, so much more footage just in terms of literal literal yep. screen hours or yeah, minutes. Sure. You don't cut. To be able to, when the editor gets it, know exactly that that little tiny marker they see on the timeline is goes straight into the cerebral cortex of the director of the brain who saw and sat and watched it on set while the actor was living and breathing. And it's like um, he gets this not just we love to take five. He gets some little tiny little glimpse into what the act director was looking for in that particular day. Because obviously he can be off sh cutting day four, five, six before it directors Absolutely. even with yeah, him, totally. you know, and emailing well, stuff. So, not, again, I'm not talking about Fright Night, but there was no, no. a very famous director in Hollywood who started deleting sets, uh, takes on set because if he didn't like the performance, <laughs> he didn't want anybody else having a better, a different cut than his. It's scary, but I, lo I love it. So they actually, he actually made them delete. I so love when it. it went to post. It was Excellent. like, where are all the rest of the takes? Excellent. We didn't like, get your that's takes. It. That's you... all there is. <laughs> no studio cut here. Yeah, that well, stupid one where you said, can they smile at the end of it or yeah. turn to the camera no, or whatever. Make it. Yeah, that's weird. That's not there. So that's spooky. Yeah, so that whole idea of, um, uh, which is where something like um, 1619 comes in because they are the, the onset sort of geek gods that you would go to and say, hey, I need this problem solved. Solve it. 
Yeah, um, want, you want to ungeek it though. I mean, oh, I, no. you know, I want to literally just be a little tiny. I had this great Richard Leroy, the editor, yeah. fantastic um, editor, has this great technique. He did have this fantastic technique. Um, he would. Um, You'd sit and go and watch through the rushes. And he had a little tiny button under his. Um, he had a little thermal. Uh, I guess it was like a, a thermal roll printer, um, video still printer. You know, like those video yeah. still printers. And he just load it up at the beginning of a, a session and just put it in the corner of the room. And he would um, literally, as you were watching the rushes, and obviously you'd have time code burnt in, right? right? So you just, as you go, ah, oh, the great bit. And he just pressed the little button quietly, and he just create these little rolls. And then the next day you'd come back into cut, and the entire back wall would be plastered with rolls and rolls of thermal stuff, particularly if you're doing multiple cameras, oh, those, right? I remember those Sony thermal video yeah, exactly. printers. But he'd keep it as a roll, right? Yeah. And just wallpaper the entire wall with it. And then so you can be, you know, obviously particularly if you're dealing with a lot of footage or multiple cameras, you can be saying, oh, that's great. If only we had a little shot, a close-up of that guy from that point, is there something on B-cam? And you can look up on the wall and go, oh, there's a moment. And I, you know that that frame is a moment that I loved. Yeah. And you just go, oh, yeah, there's a mitt here, 22-5-12-02. And you that. just go, boom, bang, and, done, and did it. Yeah. This is probably a bit more pre-digital days, but, uh, you know, it's nice to sort of... And it was a creative way of doing it. It wasn't the roll of geeky paper on the wall because it was, you know, because it, it, had, it had a creative... You know, benefit, which is well, what sure. this, all this is all about. So that's what we have to find in, and I'm obviously away from the specific camera. We just need to be able to find yeah, a way no, of getting that. This is beyond. We just have to get that information captured in a way that's friendly, powerful, and yeah. and then it's got to be as. And this is a point that sixteen nineteen really pushed. It has to be perfect in the sense that you can't have an incomplete database that means that when you go to a shot and you look at it you go what lens was that ah it might have been the 16 not quite sure from these notes at that point you go well i can't trust it's a 16 we're going to have to assume that it might have been but not necessarily you need a lot of data integrity right down the line especially with the metadata um but yeah no like i look i think this is uh this really excites me but Mm. it's a way of getting it, yeah, look, it's it's as geeky as it can be, but it needs to be presented in a most creative, friendly way imaginable. Yeah, here's a little tiny Bluetooth pointer. Keep this in your, you know, or you know, pre- but, one of those little presenter mics Cine, or something bloody simple. I think CineSync does that. When CineSync asks the director, you know, and you can just draw on the screen to show what you want. Sure. That is invaluable information. Absolutely. And no director feels, yep. you know, oh, I can't touch this computer thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. I'm just thinking of a way of, you know, translate that to an onset yep. thing, that little tiny moment that goes beyond a circle take. So, guys, we need to get need on something like that and something that is just uncomplicated because if I'm handed in the stress of the moment and watching yeah. an actor and the time and the schedule, if something you've handed me runs out of batteries or loses sync or wirelessly doesn't link or, you know, gets unpaired or whatever it is, you know, it's going to get thrown across the, the room. It just needs to be something really simple. And I just think that would be bloody awesome. And editors yep. would just love it and directors would love it. Well, and, and there's more than just the selected take, right? As I said, like there's all the stereo sure, I decisions. should just do this stuff and just not talk about it and just actually create this. Or I'm sure we'll or, it yeah, it's just easier if I could <laughs> or something cool. We could uh, – anyway, I think it would be – and something that can be, um, you know, obviously it's cross-platform on – yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, anyway, shutting up, moving on. Um, let's go to the uh, equipment, shall we? And now, the RC Gear Guide. Right, so the first bit, obviously, one of it relates to an interview, and uh, another one is there's another little piece of gear which I'm very keen to um, investigate because we're sort of, 
this little camera's kind of uh, fallen through the cracks a little bit because it's, uh, you know, a little sort of happy snappy, really. Uh, this is, um, uh, and, you know, credit to Film Digital Times who had this little um, little post on their blog about turning a uh, Sony NX5 uh, stills camera into a director's viewfinder, which I think could be, it could work quite well. And again, it has a creative grounding to it. This is not just geek crap for, 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 for tech's sake. Um, NEX5 is a uh, APS-C size, um, I guess like a little sort of rangefinder camera, but it is interchangeable lens. Uh, and it's kind of fallen through the cracks a little bit, but people have sort of latched onto this stuff. You go onto the net, and we've talked about this with like the NX cam, the Sony NX cams and stuff like this. There's a lot of uh, uh, mount adapters around, um, particularly on eBay. I've seen definitely like hunt, you know, dozens of like you know, hundred or two hundred dollars for a little mount adapter. Um, essentially, the NX5 has a uh, Sony E mount, and you can basically obviously take off the standard lens and put uh, this uh, PL to Sony E-mount adapter on and then essentially call it, call it a director's viewfinder. You can walk around set and spot the shot with your DP looking over your shoulder because it's not... Obviously, what you have with director's viewfinders at the moment, and most of them are sort of pretty passive. You're looking through a optical viewfinder. You've got to you know, point in the right direction and then you hand it to creative or DP or whatever and say, here, and they sort of point in the right direction, no idea whether they're kind of framing or seeing what you're seeing or seeing whether it's just that little amount of foreground on the left or whether their shot is completely blocked and you've just handed over to a director, uh, to a, your creative director who's gone, oh, yeah, that's really good and, you know, basically is standing with a frame blocked by the foreground or whatever. So this has got a little, fl- really solidly built, beautifully metal, 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 metal construction, as I said, APS-C size chip, 23.4 by 15.6 mil sensor. I'm thinking with if you take away the look around uh, and, you know, the sort of sensor crop, the active pixels uh, on, say, a red one or um, might be sort of pretty close to this in terms of field of view. I mean, I, I use a 7D like that because it has almost exactly the same field of view. This is true, the, absolutely. But but this obviously you're using the PL you're using your, your your onset lenses. This is obviously for a PL mount shoot, not yeah. for a seven D's perfect directed viewfinder for well, no, five I mean, D shoot. Matches, it's, no, but it matches. Or a, just use it your matches camera. a red. It just does in field of view. It matches a red. Should do. But it if doesn't you put have it a PL mount lens on it. Is what yeah, I'm exactly. Whereas this would be the same thing, but you could actually put the right lens on it. Yeah, and not being a seven D obviously has mirror box and is a reflex camera, and thus uh, you know if you want to put a, every single lens. On with a PL mount adapter, you no, no, need no, no, to. No, no, sorry, I miss, I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I, yeah. I completely understand oh, what you're yeah, saying. Yeah. You could use it just with the usual Canon lenses. Yeah, just, yeah. But what you can't do is put PLs is, on, is there. Put PLs on yep. there, obviously, yep. um, and uh, spot it that way because yep. you know you need to get rid of your mirror box for a lot of. Some lenses will fit, but not all. This being a, a, um, a essentially mirrorless, you know, an EVIL camera. It has, um, you know, theoretically, there's no problem with uh, clearance through to through to the sensor, whatever lens will fit. What do you reckon a Sony um, NEX5 would go for? Like, is it expensive? I think they're reason. I think with a lens, they're about sort of six or something hundred dollars. So reasonably expensive. I think they might be. 
I think, yeah, I think 700 retail, right. I think, is kind okay. of with a lens. So, yeah. Look, oh, 650 if it's a – I think there's a 16mm one. There's a couple of different 15? kits and there's twin yeah. lens kits and stuff. You yeah. know, it would be great if they just sold this as a body only, which, of course, they don't. But if you can try and find body only on eBay or something like that, there's a way to be able to – And the MTF adapter, that's about as expensive as a body camera, though. That it? is the MTF adapter, but there is uh, – I've seen two or three or four, and obviously you have to be a bit cautious of this sort of stuff because some of this stuff, you know, can come from – you know, any old factory uh, with any old construction standards. You don't want your $20,000 lens falling onto the set because the um, um, lens mount locking system is made of plasticine. But the one you're putting in the show notes is... The in the show notes they've used is the... Uh, and that's like a 300-pound lens adapter. Yeah, yeah. It is getting expensive-ish. Well, no, I mean, it's not a stupid amount. I mean, no, if, it's, if, it, if it works... Uh, it'd be nice you know, if it's cheaper, but it's Absolutely. Not. But I've seen... What makes me a bit more interested in doing this is I've seen a couple of the... You know, from, from Eastern Europe, not, um, and for like 149... So you might be able to get out of... Posted. So you could get a whole system, put a loop... I mean, a, sorry, a... Sort of a, some kind of thing on the back of it. You could do, or you can. I'm not even planning to do that. Just literally use the the LCD on so the back. Seven hundred fifty. Partly what? Out the door. Yeah, that's partly what is um, I'm interested in. Partly because you know you can have rather than hand the finder over to someone and hope that they're seeing what you saw. Literally, that that whole LCD on the back flips right up or down, and you can obviously just be holding this in front of you and spot the shot, and you can both be looking at it and basically say and, and pointing at the screen and discussing it. You know what I mean? So it can be a bit of a collaborative thing. Um, so you know, I just it's worth. I'm going. I'm definitely going to investigate this. Are you listening, Sony? <laughs> um, okay, next bit of gear. Uh, this is a long show for the first one a year. Um, Next one is uh, the Cineroid uh, EVF, Electronic Viewfinder. Um, obviously, there's a few of these out and about or, or coming soon. The Zakudo and Red Rock, Red Rock Micro have got uh, versions in the works as yet, not not shipping. But Cineroid are the first uh, out the gate. Uh, these guys are a Korean company. I first saw them in a very small Perspex case way in a dark, dark corner of NAB at the beginning of last year. And I had a, ver- I had a card that I couldn't quite communicate with them. No one returned any emails. But these guys are sort of kicking it with a bit of force now and uh, are out there. This is looking quite good. It's reasonably expensive, but um, they seem to be doing all the right things and, and thinking about stuff here. Uh, it's only 800 by 400 resolution, but uh, it's, it's quite small. That is in quite a small sort of space, like three and a half or so inch um, display. You can take the loop off the top of it. So essentially it is a, an eye, the, the ability to be able to um, keep your eye to the viewfinder but not have all the camera right out the front. You could put this on a little, on a little um, articulated arm and almost have the camera on your shoulder put some weight behind and have the um, a bit more like a traditional you know ergonomics that we're used is, to with DSLRs. This is an HT, uh, HDMI. This is, this is HDMI. Then I could actually have a HDMI running down a uh, like a mini jib. I mean, for, because I could. I mean, you can't run yes. a huge distance. Absolutely. You yeah. No. You, you could absolutely. You could use it. For any, you could if you wanted to. Although it's obviously nowhere near the resolution you want, but you could run it out of a red or whatever you like, um, or an you know F three or whatever. Oh, I guess for that range, you can run any. HDMI monitor off it. Yeah, you could, absolutely. But what's nice is obviously, A, it's it's kind of a viewfinder where you can get your eye in close. It's good for bright, sun, bright you know, full sunlight viewing. 
it has HDMI loop through, so obviously you can put the HDMI input from the camera in and then be able to spit out to Video Village or somewhere else or another onboard monitor for clients. Uh, it's got... Um, Focus peaking, as we've seen with the F3, which is fantastic. The, the loop, you can take that off and just use it as a three-and-a-half-inch monitor. Uh, it's got Zebra. So it's got a pixel-to-pixel. Pixel. your small HD monitors? Um, I'd like to sort of play with it in terms of the ergonomics of getting this because with the um, – the monitor, uh, if, if you're sort of doing handheld mode and you've got the monitor oh, yeah. out the front, good. it sticks out quite big. It's quite, you know, if you're passing through yep. doorways or whatever, it's quite a big sort of thing there. Also, the other thing with it is that when the focus puller, I'm, I'm imagining if you're putting, if you're on a handheld rig that you have the monitor mounted on, say, your front bars, yep. right? As soon as the focus puller reaches for the follow focus, he puts his hand in front of the monitor and you can't see, so and you can't really share. So this will be a viewfinder that won't get in the way. It can be sun, bright sunlight viewable, um, quite small, compact, not sticking out a whole bunch uh, either side of the camera, If you, as I say, if you're walking through doors or in a car. Um, so it's got 4.3, 4x3 guides, horizontal and vertical image flip. So if you're mounting it upside down or whatever, or the back of a camera, or the front of a camera, or if you're flipping it or whatever for the cameras upside down, it's got all these keys on the side of it which can be assignable. So you can make, like a lot of these monitors, you can make any of it be the um, pixel to pixel, you know, the focus check or uh, focus peaking, etc. Um, so, you know, I think it's, uh, these guys are thinking it's re- really impressive. And obviously this is just the start. There'll be a few more model, a few more guys out the door with these things. Uh, it's about 800 us, uh, about 600 euro. And there's a couple of links in the show notes to where you can get them from Marco tech, uh, in Europe, I think, and Cineroid have a, their own website, but I think it's being sold. They're just establishing all their resellers now, but they are basically, you can, if you Google it, you can try and find this stuff online. It can be purchased and physically had as opposed to the, uh, the others, which are still work in progress, but I like them. I love, what it does. It actually makes your com camera really, really compact, you know? Very small shoulder mount thing and start to get back to more of a film um, um, form Ergonomics, factor. Okay. Yes, exactly. So, our other piece of equipment we wanted to do this week um, is the Easy Focus um, movie cam system. Now, this is uh, rather than us talk about it, Jason, you actually interviewed the guys about this. Yeah, I talked to Gabriel Bauer, who has got a huge history in the film game and actually of doing reasonably sensible things. Uh, <laughs> Very he, sensible things. He invented the movie cam, and which then obviously evolved hugely into the ARRI cam. Was very, very in, um, involved in essentially designing ARRI cam and. and um, uh, and a lot of the innovations that uh, started off with MovieCam ended up in, in Aricam. The uh, you know the speed data computers, the ability to do ramping, really really quiet, really really steady. Uh, almost you know, essentially developed some of the first you know video video split cameras. Um, father of pretty much the modern um, motion picture cameras. Yeah, he's a legend. Uh, absolutely. And so the easy, fo- obviously, so he's moved on, sold all his patents, got you know, got, got out of it all, but he's uh, still obviously uh, not, still, still inventing. The easy focus is a laser, I guess you call it like a LiDAR system of uh, focus tracking and, and uh, a focus assistance. Obviously, what he's keen to stress in the interview is that this is not to replace uh, or um, devalue the art of the focus puller. This is an assistant tool to be able to help them, particularly on uh, 
uh, Russian arms and um, tracking vehicles. Um, the ability to essentially also for you po- post-wise, Mike, to be able to send out a LiDAR scan of the entire set uh, or green screen set and give you uh, multiple focus points, uh, you essentially give you a LiDAR map of the entire set um, as it moves um, with all the focus and focus details and lens breathing and um, and give it all to you at the end of the day on a USB stick. So it's a very interesting, um, you know, this is not for everything. This is, but it's you know it's a very interesting uh, piece of tech for uh, for some for some uses. Well, let's so, uh, cross to that interview now, uh, which was recorded. Is he in Germany or yes, in yeah. Munich? Great. Uh, I'm speaking to Gabriel Bauer, president of FG Bauer. Um, thanks so much, Gabriel, for taking the time to speak. Oh, it's a pleasure. So, look, uh, I was really intrigued to come across the uh, Easy Focus system, and I'm just wondering if you can give us an overview of the system and how it works. Ah, okay, with pleasure. Uh, first, uh, you know, after designing uh, the movie cams and the Arikin line of cameras together with Arian Bionic, uh, I have sold my company movie cam to Ari, and I was thinking about uh, accessories which might be good for the industry, so and I came up with the idea to help focus pullers. Out of my own experience, you know, when I did, I was uh, directing and shooting commercials and using a techno train or so, and uh, being in a hurry, as we all know, focusing becomes more or less a little bit of guessing. And if you are shooting at sunset, wide open, a long lens, you have more mixed feelings uh, seeing the rushes the next day. So I thought I should give uh, my, my focus puller, my, my assistant, a little help. And uh, we started out with, you know, using a laser measuring device. Uh, so then I came up with the idea of using uh, a video uh, output, the picture of the video assist, and designing a, a system where I can touch any area of the video screen and uh, the laser will point to this area and give me the focus and uh, via the motor uh, it will be uh, set automatically. So just jumping back a little bit, take us through the physical parts of the system, what mounts on the camera and what the focus puller is operating with. Okay, you know we have a so-called reader which is the device which measures the distance. It sits on top of the camera, uh, above of the lens or underneath. There are two possible situations depending where the camera is and where the camera is looking at. Uh, this is number one, the reader, and second is uh, the PC, which is uh, the industrial PC. It's a touch focus, and uh, in using the image of the video assist or the output of a HD camera, which appears on the PC, we can use this image and uh, direct the laser to any point, point uh, on the screen and take measurements there. This seems uh, very easy. Uh, but considering that uh, you have to deal with horizontal and vertical angles of any, every lenses, uh, so we had to uh, uh, begin to make a library of all the lenses with their horizontal and vertical angles and also with their performance as far as breathing is concerned. So we have also to include the breathing of the lens into our library. Now, having this, we are able now to, uh, whatever common lens will be mounted to the cameras 
which means the size, uh, the engineers, the crooks, uh, and uh, the alley times, uh, and so on and so on. We have it in the library, and we can uh, service those lenses. We have on the system different working modes. The first is the autofocus, which is just to substitute for your tape measure. So you point to some object in the frame, and it will give you exactly the distance, and if you would like to focus will be as, as fast as your motor is, will be there. But that's not how we do focus in, in, in real life. So we have to introduce a mode which is called the ramping mode. You can pre-select the time where the focus shifts from A to B. So it can be 0.5 seconds if it has to be fast, or it can be up to 15 seconds. So then uh, I think a very interesting mode is uh, the so-called tracking mode. You can, uh, with your cursor or with a little pin, because it's a touch screen where we're operating with, or with your finger, hit onto an object and follow it. Let's say a car is approaching. So you can have the system focusing on the object which you are following with your finger, pen, or with the cursor. We have a mode which might be very interested for post-production. We call it mapping. You can, if you have a green screen situation or something like that, and have only a few elements on the set which might be some steps or columns or a door or whatever. Everything else has to be computer generated. So we can give to the CGI people a mapping of, uh, of, the, of the scene with all the distances they would like, the head of the column, the feet of the column, uh, the, the door, the steps, and so on and so on, multiple uh, measurements with the actual picture of the video image, and we can give the starter to them via a USB stick or whatever, and they have got now the dynamic of the lens, the vectors, any angle to any chosen object, and they can, from then on, uh, generate uh, their image in the, in the uh, corresponding dynamic of the lens, you know, which uh, seems to be very important. Right. Yeah, and, and, you know, the experience now here in Hollywood with some of the CGI people is uh, overwhelming. They love it. Uh, but they came up immediately, oh, it would be nice uh, if you can give us matrix. Just uh, set the camera up. Uh, here is the green screen situation, and uh, we would like to have a matrix at, say, 20,000 different points and measurements. <laughs> and we could do this. So the program is already made. And, uh, you know, then having them with a USB stick, all the data and the picture, they just can point to any area uh, of, uh, of, of their image, and they will, give, they will have a three-dimensional diagram, X, Y, and C axis with the distance, and it seems very helpful to them. Right. So this is all done via what, LiDAR? Or? You know, our reader is a laser, yes. It's right. a low-powered, eye-safe laser, and uh, it's a highly sophisticated electromechanical stuff, because, you know, we're pointing to lay the laser to all the areas in, 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 in the frame, uh, you have to move him. And the laser has to know the angles of the lens where this particular point in the frame, now taken with a 75 millimeter or whatever, is. So it turned out to be quite some program writing, so to say. Yeah, I'm sure it is. The way it's shown at the moment is it's set up on a lot of film cameras. How does that work with, say, Alexa or RED or so? 
No, it's completely independent of the camera. What we need is the image which is actually shot. Yep. So with the film camera, we are using the image of the video assist. And with the Alexa, we are using, you know, the unconverted to SD and uh, have the image. It doesn't, it doesn't harm the laser at all if the quality is good or bad, uh, because the laser is not looking through the lens. The, the, the laser is mounted on top of the camera, on top of the optical axis, and everything is done by a geometric calculation to relate uh, the, the focus to the film plane. What's the um, sort of setup time and calibration time once you put the thing together? Because obviously it's, it's terrific to be able to do that shot, but uh, you don't want to have to get up at 2 in the morning to be able to set it all up. Sure. The setup time uh, is uh, to be seen in two phases. First is the mechanical. So you have to use your 15 or 19 mil rods, the standard system where a camera is, is, is mounted on, and uh, set up uh, the system, uh, put the focus motor in place, then to put the laser on top or uh, bottom situation, then you have to wire it. So it will take you, if you're experienced, 10 minutes mm -hmm. to set up the mechanics. And then you have to go into the settings. So uh, decide which lens you're using or which lens is already on the camera. Now the computer knows what he is dealing with. He knows exactly the angle, horizontal and vertical of the lens and also the breathing of the lens. Um, uh, which uh, was very difficult to include, but we did it. What about the hookups from the camera to the main operator station? Uh, you can go by wire or wireless. But let's say if you are on a Russian arm or on a technocrane or so, everything is by cable. It runs through the system down, you've got your video and so on and so on. But if you, let's say, has it on a Steadicam, it can be completely wireless. So this is not too heavy to put on a Steadicam? Yeah, it's about uh, it's about 1.5 kilograms okay. probably. Yep. How does it go with zoom lenses? Uh, you have to you have your zoom motor, and this zoom motor comes back to the, the the motor controller. You know the zoom is now at 120, or the zoom is now the area of 33 millimeters instead right. of 24. How can people get their hands on them? Are they starting to come out into the real world? Oh, yes, yes, yes. You know, we've been uh, here in Hollywood, and, and that's where we are starting our, our, our let's say, marketing. We have been at uh, Stargate, Sam Nicholson, the, 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 the ASC, DOP, yep. and we are talking to their crews and so on and so on. And we have it on display at Claremont Camera uh, in Burbank. And um, uh, we will have uh, the camera in Munich. We, we are going through uh, airy rentals. Uh, the people in London, Arimedia, are very keen to get one because they have also the, uh, a Russian arm car. Right. And all this Russian arm star is so popular now. Yeah. And it's so demanding, you know, pulling focus there. Yeah. It would be nice if, 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 if the market in, in Australia demands something. Uh, somebody is shooting in New Zealand right? so a lot of the rings number seven <laughs> you name it <laughs> absolutely we'll see what we can do uh -huh. <laughs> how can people find out more where can they go only our you know our website which is uh, under construction only the leaflet is there easyfocus.at thank you again Gabriel I really appreciate you taking the time to speak I really really appreciate it man same from my side it was a pleasure 
Well, thanks for that, Jace. Though I think I misled you. I think I said at the beginning of that interview that he was in Germany, but I LA, think he's yes. in LA. He's yeah? in LA yeah, yeah. at the moment, yes, because obviously he's trying to establish this uh, piece of gear and get into rental houses and um, camera gu- you know, guys are using it and feeding back now and it's evolving, but uh, you can definitely rent it. Uh, as it stands, this is not a, something that's in beta. It's it's out there now. So, and obviously, you can also buy it. Excellent for fifty nine thousand dollars. Okay, <laughs> uh, sounds like a bit of rental kit, but um, a really valuable piece of rental kit. Oh, look, I think you know, as he says, for some applica- it's not for everything, but this is uh, for some applications. I think it would be incredibly interesting. Okay, so look, um, just to finish up the show, uh, slightly uh, tangential, I guess, but. Um, uh, before we do our final Twitter shout-outs, I just wanted to do a shout-out to the uh, seven films headed to the Bake Off for the VFX Oscar. Um, we don't have yet the uh, nominees for cinematography. Obviously, we'll cover those when they come out. But yeah. um, today, as we were recording this, they announced the seven films heading to the Bake Off, which the initial long list of 15 has come down to seven. Um, Alice in Wonderland, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, Hereafter, Inception, Iron Man 2, Scott Pilgrim and the World, and uh, Tron Legacy. And that's... Um, Obviously, uh, the, the nominations, which should include the cinematography nominations, will be announced uh, on the 25th of this month, um, around 5.30 Pacific time. And then, of course, the uh, ceremonies in uh, late uh, February, I think, the 27th of February. Yeah, I think they've moved um, it slightly later. Yeah. But, uh, yes, yeah, so um, a lot of people I know that listen to this are also into visual effects. And uh, we want to th- shout out to all the artists that worked on those uh, those films. And I, I think it's a good run of films. I'm slightly surprised that Hereafter... I guess, um, look, to be honest, I haven't seen Hereafter. I'm going to see it uh, no, a, a preview here in Australia. It was one of those films that was delayed from local release, hence no press screenings or anything else that we could get to. But I, I've enjoyed all the others. I probably didn't enjoy Scott Pilgrim as much as the others. <laughs> but, you know, then that was made up for by some of the others, which were just masterpieces. Mm. Um, Jace, thank you. Um, thank you. We, we're going to do a Twitter shout-out to ourselves um, because I just want to explain what's going on with the... Uh, with a Twitter feed, because we've um, just decided to adopt the nickname of the show, the RC. The um, the Twitter feed is now the RC Podcast, no spaces. So if you want to check us out on Twitter, now if you were previously following Red Center on Twitter, it should have automatically gone over. You wouldn't have lost um, the feed. Yep. But if you are now trying to do uh, a Twitter feed or tell someone to look at us on Twitter, it would be the RC Podcast, um, and uh, that's uh, of course. Um, where we are collectively, where you are individually, Jason, is... Uh, I'm twitter.com slash wingrove or jasonwingrove.com or vimeo.com slash wingrove. And uh, I'm Mike Seymour on Twitter. If you'd like to send us an email, and as you know, we just get quite a lot of emails from you guys and we we love it to death. We've just changed the um, email as well. Now, we're going to keep the old one running, so if you're used to sending us at uh, red.fxguide.com, that's fine, but you can also send it to us at rc at fxguide.com so either those two will work um, let us know what you think let us know what you think about the new website uh, the new um, abbreviated name um, and everything else and as always uh, we want to thank everybody for their contribution very long show this week uh, with our two interviews but um, coming back from Christmas we were just uh, busting and also yeah. Jason happy birthday maybe we can thank sign you. off and I can take you to lunch excellent until next I have time. no room after the cake but thank you until next time <laughs> thanks so much guys see you Thanks for listening. Send your questions or comments to rc at fxguide.com. This podcast sponsored by Storm, the red digital cinema production hub from the Foundry. Copyright 2011, FX Guide, LLC.